0: Welcome to Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast that looks at the science fiction, fantasy, and horror we read, watch, and play. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Pershawn. I teach English Literature and Film Studies at McEwen University, and this podcast is where I share my research and ramblings about books, films, and games set in impossible and improbable worlds. This episode is part of a series called Office Hours, which is devoted to the sort of meandering, reflective, and fun conversations I have with students who drop by to say hello. But before I get to the episode, I wanted to thank you for listening. I want to thank you for subscribing, for downloading, for tuning in. As I'll talk about today, there's something valuable in just creating something. I would be reaping intrinsic rewards without y'all, but sometimes those extrinsic rewards are fun as well, and it's been really cool to be watching the stats and seeing numbers that are very similar to the ones that I had during the school year, but none of this is assigned. None of you have to be tuning in, so I really, really appreciate it. This week, I'm not imagining a conversation with a student, but rather I'm recalling a conversation I had with... A friend's wife a few years back. Um, she was asking about us all playing Dungeons and Dragons. We we play role playing games together, and uh, she said, you know, because I had just finished writing my book on steampunk, she was asking me if perhaps it wouldn't make sense for her husband, one of my gaming buddies, to maybe take all of his experience, you know, playing role playing games, all of this stuff that he's doing, and turning it into a book. Say um, or something, and I could just—you could sort of hear it in the the, the subtext—something productive, you know. And it's like the question that people will ask me, like, "Why don't you do a streaming YouTube channel of your gaming group?" Or right after I finished writing my book, somebody was like, "Hey, you know, are you going to write another book?" And I said, "Absolutely not." And they said, "Really? Why not?" And I said, "Because I just want to focus on gaming. I just want to focus on my my Dungeons and Dragons stuff." And they said, wow, that's just such a shame that you would take all of that creative energy and put it over there into, you know, that thing that, you know, the world isn't going to take part in, I guess. Uh, And I I was out running this morning, and incidentally, the person who asked me about writing a book was a runner. And uh, no one ever asks me if I'll be turning my running or my cycling, which I do even more, into something, quote-unquote, productive. Uh, We, I think, assume as a culture that physical activity is just already productive. It's going to make us more agile, make us more fit, make us skinnier, stronger, faster, faster. Uh, I just turned 50, and I find that a lot of my friends are actually getting hurt doing sports, so I don't know if that's a really good argument. But playing sports in general is so normalized in North America as productive activity that we spend ridiculous amounts of money as a culture putting our kids into sport li- sports leagues, and no one questions this. I run role-playing games for my kids and their friends, and I imagine that if I was to ask the kids who game with my kids that, you know, you have to buy the player's manual, you have to buy the monster manual. Um, there would be some sort of pushback before you can play D and D with my kids. You have to own these things. Uh, I think there would be pushback from the parents. Really? You want me to spend, you know, 50 to $60 on this hardback book for my child to pretend to be an elf. Uh, and I know this to some degree because I've even had pushback, uh, with the whole, do I really have to buy my own dice? But if I was to coach hockey, and now we're really out into the fantasy role-playing world with me, us imagining me coaching hockey. But let's just, you know, I coach hockey. No one would question me saying, okay, you're going to need skates, you're going to need a stick, you're going to need a helmet, you're going to need pads. And these things are going to cost you hundreds of dollars. And you're going to get up on a regular basis at an ungodly hour, and you're going to bring your kids there. Or you're going to show up for late night ice time yourself. You're going to rent a hockey rink with your friends and you're going to go and you're going to play super late at night and no one questions this. So we can see that some games are more privileged in our society. Sports games, good, tacitly good, no questions asked. Board games? Video games? Role-playing games? Questions abound. And this is related to how we think of mental health very differently from physical health. Go to a doctor for a cold, totally normal. Go to a therapist for anything, and, you know, we're, we're, we're less, we're far more reticent about talking about that with our friends and family. Hell, you can go to your doctor for drugs for erectile dysfunction, and while that might feel like something you don't want to share with everyone, at least people would get it. And it, it's somewhat normal. But you go to a therapist for erectile dysfunction, well something's wrong with you, right? So in North America, and I think we're getting over this slowly but surely, uh, we have some really screwed up ideas about mental health. And I know this because of this positioning of sports, always good, role-playing games, uh, mindless entertainment just for escapist fun. Or are they? See, as it turns out, games are really good for mental health. So good that we should probably be prescribing them. I think one of the reasons that there's this stigma still attached to role-playing games is because, you know, cultural memory recalls the satanic panic of the 1980s, which bled over a little bit into the 1990s. Uh, so much so that I actually nearly lost my first job as a youth minister because I was playing uh a role-playing game, not Dungeons and Dragons, but a role-playing game with some of the youth at the church I was working for. And uh in the sort of inquisitional star chamber moment where... I had to defend what I'd been doing up until that point. Uh, I brought in the pulling report, which was written by Michael Stackpole, and it was a response to the criticism of an organization. And this is not a joke called. Bad, B-A-D-D, bothered about Dungeons & Dragons groups. It was a public advocacy group in the early 80s. Um, And Patricia Pulling was one of the loudest voices associated with this group. Her son had committed suicide and she blamed Dungeons & Dragons. And so she was trying to uh, get it out there into the world that um, the game Dungeons & Dragons has caused a number of suicides and murders. And I'm going to read to you directly from Shannon Applecline's excellent deep-dive historical study of the history of role-playing games, the first volume of Designers and Dragons where Shannon's talking about the Satanic Panic and Stackpole's response. Over the next few years, Stackpole was at the forefront in defending Dungeons & Dragons and the rest of the role-playing community. At one point, he turned BADD's pseudoscience against them by comparing BADD's account of role-playing suicides to the general rate of teen suicide in the culture. According to his interpretation of BADD's statistics, 500 D&D players should have been committing suicide each year, where bad only recorded seven, thus suggesting that D and D should be adopted as a public health measure. A friend of mine, who's a mathematician, the late friend of mine, who's a mathematician, um, calculated something very similar and said the very same thing when he was contemplating our role-playing games dangerous. And he said, as it turns out, what we see from any of the, you know, sort of really crummy, crummy statistical information that we had, I just, I just invented a portmanteau, crumical, um, that, you know, D&D probably prevented people from committing suicide based on those statistics. He thought statistically all the time. Now, that doesn't necessarily prove anything because it's based on spurious statistical information. But part one of Jane McGonigal's book, Reality is Broken, Why Games Make Us Better and How They Can Change the World is devoted entirely to the question of why games make us happy. McGonagall's study is specifically about uh, video games, but she occasionally, you know, said talks about other types of games. McGonagall has a very concise definition for what a game is. It uh, has four defining traits, a goal, rules, a feedback system, and voluntary participation. And she includes a quote from Bernard Suits, uh, a philosopher, who said that playing a game is the voluntary attempt to overcome unnecessary obstacles. With a definition like that, McGonigal is able to look at games of all sorts, and her first foray into that includes golf, a sport, Scrabble, a board game, and Tetris, a video game. I don't think that anyone would argue that any of those aren't games. And yet it was funny to me a few years back in the middle of a class, I had said something about one of the statistics that McGonagall includes in her book about how, you know, there's like almost 80% of the world uh, are gamers. And one of my students scoffed. And I knew that this student played on uh, our university's volleyball team. And I said, but don't you play volleyball? To which they replied, yeah, but that's a sport. You can just hear it right there, right? That's a sport, not a game. McGonagall says the following about playing good games, whether they're sports or board games or video games. When we're playing a good game, when we're tackling unnecessary obstacles, we are actively moving ourselves toward the positive end of the emotional spectrum. We are intensely engaged, and this puts us in precisely the right frame of mind and physical condition to generate all kinds of positive emotions and experiences. All of the neurological and physiological systems that underlie happiness Happiness. Our attention systems, our reward center, our motivation systems, our emotion and memory centers are fully activated by gameplay. Now, whenever I'm reading McGonagall, I'm always thinking about role-playing games. I almost never think about, you know, the video games that she's talking about. In fact, I'm constantly synthesizing it over to my own experience with role-playing games Especially in the area of flow. She talks about the findings of Sent Csikszentmihalyi, who was an American psychologist who wrote a book called Beyond Boredom and Anxiety, and in that groundbreaking scientific study talked about a specific kind of happiness he called flow, which is, quote, the satisfying, exhilarating feeling of creating a creative accomplishment and heightened functioning. I'm going to say that again. The satisfying, exhilarating feeling of creative accomplishment and heightened functioning. And that just makes me think of whenever I'm prepping for a game, mostly as a dungeon master, mostly as the guy who's going to be the referee for the role-playing game. If you've never played a role-playing game, uh, I'm the person who's setting the stage. You can think about it in theater terms that I'm effectively the director and that to some degree, the players of the game are like the actors, but unlike a play, there's no set script and ultimately the audience is an audience of the performers and the director that the game master, the dungeon master, and the players are also the audience of the narrative that is being constructed, which consequently means that everybody at the table gets to experience the joy of flow. As McGonagall talks more about that, Csikszentmihalyi's research showed that flow was most reliably and most efficiently produced by the specific combination of self chosen goals personally optimized obstacles and continuous feedback that make up the essential structure of gameplay. Games are an obvious source of flow, he wrote, and play is the flow experience par excellence. Uh, And I would say from experience that role-playing games are the... Flow experience par excellence. That as I'm prepping for it, I'm experiencing flow. I can read game books and write information down about what the game is going to need to be like. I can work in uh, software platforms like Roll20 and I can work in Photoshop to um, work on maps for the game. Um, just constantly in a space of creativity, choosing a playlist to play in the background to set the mood for the game, thinking about the voices I'm going to use for particular characters. I'm just in constant creative mode. And then when the game actually happens, because of the improvisational nature thereof, I am getting just a a wash, a deluge. I use that word way too much, don't I? Of um, positive intrinsic rewards. So let's talk a little bit about extrinsic and intrinsic rewards. Extrinsic rewards are things like money, material goods, status, or praise. They are the things that come from outside of ourselves. Intrinsic rewards, on the other hand, are positive emotions, personal strengths, and social connections that we build by engaging intensely with the world around us. They are interior rewards. And Jane McGonigal claims, uh, quoting... A well-known study conducted at the University of Rochester in 2009 that the attainment of extrinsic or American dream goals, that is money, fame, and being considered physically attractive by others, does not contribute to happiness at all. On the other hand, that same study, uh, quote, showed that, uh, quote, individuals who focused on intrinsically rewarding activity, working hard to develop their personal strengths and build social relationships, for example, were measurably happier over the entire two-year period, completely regardless of external life circumstances like salary or social status. Now, role-playing games are a way that we can trigger intrinsic rewards. That is to say, we can trigger the chemicals that generate pleasure, enjoyment, satisfaction, ecstasy, contentment, love, and every other kind of happiness to again, quote, McGonagall. I'm using a lot of McGonagall here. So just know that sometimes I'm summarizing, sometimes I'm paraphrasing, sometimes I'm quoting directly. And she gives a list of some potential intrinsic rewards, and I can think of how to link these up to role-playing games. By undertaking a difficult challenge, such as trying to finish a task in a shorter time than usual, we can produce in our own bodies a rush of adrenaline, the excitement hormone that makes us feel confident, energetic, and highly motivated. Now, what we know about neurological responses to story is that if there is something scary in a movie, we feel genuine fear. If something is sad, we feel genuine sorrow, etc. cetera. We fall in love with uh, imaginary people. Um, and likewise, when playing a role-playing game, if something exciting is happening, we can experience a surge of adrenaline. Just last night, I was, I was running a game for my friends, and many of them talked about how thrilling and exciting it felt, and yet we were all just sitting in our own homes. We were doing this across uh, Google Meet and using Roll20, so nothing was actually happening in the real world that was threatening, but the characters were threatened, and consequently some of my players uh, probably had adrenaline surges. I know that m- me personally, I've had adrenaline surges while playing role-playing games. Here's the next one. By accomplishing something that is very hard for us, like solving a puzzle or finishing a race, our brains release a potent cocktail of norepinephrine, epinephrine, and dopamine. These three neurochemicals in combination make us feel satisfied proud and highly aroused and again there's a lot of problem solving associated with role-playing games the game tales from the loop which is uh you playing kids from the 80s solving mysteries in a 80s that never happened it's more science fiction-y um that one with all of its mysteries you solve the mystery you've solved the puzzle you are unlocking that potent cocktail of norepinephrine epinephrine and dopamine Dungeons and Dragons in particular lends itself well to what uh, I think of as action comedy, a sort of Guardians of the Galaxy more than the sort of serious, dour nature of Game of Thrones or Lord of the Rings. I mean, there's people who play role-playing games and they can keep it really serious, but a lot of the times D&D just ends up with some moments of great humor, and that is partially because of dice rolls that show that you failed, and then you have to sort of improvise, well, what, what does that failure look like? And that can be super funny. And McGonagall has this to say, when we make someone else laugh or smile, our brain is flooded with dopamine, the neurotransmitter associated with pleasure and reward. If we smile or laugh, too, the effect is even more pronounced. And D&D, role-playing games in general, are uh, tabletop ones, are social uh, activities. And this is no diss on video games, because increasingly video games are really social activities, whether it be, um, you know, a couple people playing locally or people playing across the internet now this next one doesn't apply to tabletop role-playing so much but i I think it still applies every time we coordinate or synchronize our physical movements with others uh, such as in dance or sports we release oxytocin into our bloodstream a neurochemical that makes us feel blissed out and ecstatic and you might say well that's probably not happening in tabletop role-playing no but i bet it happens with live action role-playing i bet it happens for larpers i would guess that they experience that very thing now, this next one is, is great. When we seek out what we might describe as powerful and moving stories, media, or live performances, we're actually triggering our vagus nerve, which makes us feel emotionally choked up in our chests and throats, uh, So or we're firing up our nervous system's pilomotor re- reflex, which gives us pleasurable chills and goosebumps. And that, too, can happen in a really well-crafted role-playing game, even if the story is super cheesy and would make no sense to anybody else in the world, when you are in the driver's seat. Of that story, you can have that sort of an experience and it doesn't have to be Citizen Kane. It doesn't have to be war and peace. It can just be the resolution of your character's quest or goals or personal character arc. And this last one is so d And if we provoke our curiosity by exposing ourselves to ambiguous visual stimulus like a wrapped present or a door that is just barely ajar, we experience a rush of interest biochemicals, also known as internal opiates. These include endorphins, which make us feel powerful and in control, and beta endorphin, a well-being neurotransmitter that is 80 times more powerful than morphine. And I'll tell you, I know about this one. And I'll tell you why I know about this one. Because for most of my life, I was the dungeon master. I was the game master. I was the director. Consequently, I always knew what was behind the door. So there weren't a lot of surprises for me. I mean, sometimes my players surprised me with what they did, um, but they couldn't surprise me with something behind a hidden door until... I got around to being a player, first and foremost. Uh, I started gaming with some guys who were also dungeon masters, and they said, hey, let's start rotating and give you the opportunity to be on the other side of the door, as it were. And so I knew what that rush felt like. The first time that I ever got to sit there as a player and not know what was in the dungeon what was behind the door, whether or not that crazed uh, old man that we met in the catacombs was a villain or a friend, uh, that was such a rush. But I'm also experiencing it more now that as a dungeon master, I've been handing over some of those improvisational duties to my players. You know, a player will say to me, is there a blank in the room? And I often now reply, well, is there? and giving my players the room to be able to be co-creators in the narrative that we're working on uh, has increased my experience of those internal opiates. McGonagall rounds this discussion up with four things, four major categories that intrinsic rewards fall into, um, which are related to our happiness. And they are uh, that we crave satisfying work, that we crave the experience or at least the hope of being successful, that we crave connection and that finally we crave meaning, the chance to be part of something larger than ourselves. And while role-playing games don't give these experiences IRL, in real life, they give those experiences nonetheless in the place where all experience occurs in the mind. And so when my players. And when I am engaged in prepping and playing role-playing games, we experience satisfying work. It's immensely satisfying to craft a character, to play that character, and then get to see that character succeed, right? Um, The experience, or at least the hope, of being successful. And probability and dice rolls and just the way that these games are crafted ensure that at some point you're going to roll a success you're going to roll as we say in the gaming community a 20 we crave social connection and tabletop role-playing games give us that in spades because we are sitting either at a virtual table across the internet or around a real table with other people we are engaged in social connection and finally craving meaning we're on quests we're saving the world we're making sure that Cthulhu doesn't come through from the other side and destroy the planet. Now, yes, that's all imaginary. But the brain as imagination engine ensures that we feel like it's real. And I've come off of playing a really good role-playing session with an intense buzz. And I feel it, that afterglow, the next day. It takes me right into the next day. I wake up the next morning and I have a, a feeling of well-being. So my response to my friend's wife was, would you ask him to do this about his basketball playing? And she said, don't get cute with me. And I said, I'm not getting cute with you. I didn't get into the whole discussion that I've just done with you, but it was what was running through my head. Your husband is experiencing things that are productive. They're productive only for this small group of people. But arguably, that's not drastically different than what it's like for a group of friends who go and play hockey late night with the ice time that they've booked themselves. They're not getting into the NHL. They're in their 30s and 40s. They're wishing they could be in the NHL. They're dreaming about those sorts of things as they skate around the ice and enjoy the thrill of physical hard work. But also there are those intrinsic rewards associated with playing hockey or basketball, or soccer, or whatever it might be. I don't ultimately think that we have to be defending games from this position. I think the reason that we play sports and the reason we play tabletop games and the reason we play video games is because they're fun. But fun is related to all of these intrinsic rewards. What we broadly define as fun is the result of all these different potent cocktails of neurochemicals. But it's why I don't have a problem spending an immense amount of time or money or resources investing myself in crafting narratives that only four, maybe five people get to experience, get to see. It's the mental version of me going for a run, taking a bike ride, or renting some ice time. It's a deeply satisfying creative outlet. Daniel McKay, in his book, The Fantasy Role Playing Game, speaks of fantasy role playing as a form of performance art. And having been someone who at one time wanted to work in film and did do some indie theater, I really like that idea. I like the concept that we get together when we play role-playing games with the three to five or however many people, and we do performance art together. And we do it in the same spirit, the same imp- with the same sense of impermanence as, say, a Buddhist sand painting, that we don't lament that we haven't recorded it or that we haven't published it for posterity, but rather like a single game of hockey on Late Night Ice, we have experienced something wonderful together that has rendered us happier through these intrinsic rewards. Speaking of intrinsic rewards, if you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a comment, share it with a friend. I'm on Instagram, both as DocPershon, that's P-E-R-S-C-H-O-N, and at Triple Bladed Sword. You can follow my Facebook page, Triple Bladed Sword, teaching fantasy, science fiction, and horror. And finally, if you have something you'd like me to talk about in a future office hour, leave a suggestion or a question in the comments, and I will roll on a random table to see whether or not I will get to it. Thanks for tuning in today. I'm Mike Pershan, and this is Triple Bladed Sword.